Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends, Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Sensibilities. I am your host, Andrew Martz, here with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Bill McBride. Bill? Greetings, Andrew. Greetings, Billy. How, uh, how are you this Friday? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's, um, it's 2021, so we can put last year into the pocket, get over it, and move forward. Has and anything changed? <laughs> Everything has changed. Everything has changed and nothing has changed, uh, which is a great segue into today's topic. Every, every few years, there comes an event in which I inevitably get flooded with calls, text, emails from all of my friends and family and clients. And it's always about whatever the next big thing is going to be. So these events are, are generally surrounded by like a lot of traditional media hype, some social media buzz. It's going to occupy like all of the conversations people are having at the lunch table. You know, you're talking about it at a happy hour with your friends and you get a sense, right? People, they feel like everybody in the world knew about this thing before they did. And now they're trying to jump on because you've heard the rationale enough. You've convinced yourself that this is going to change the world and you're going to make a lot of money. So this is is FOMO. This is FOMO at its finest FOMO, which leads to YOLO. And, you know, (laughs) in the last 20 years specifically, the world has changed dramatically. So the digital age has now really accelerated the, the pace of change. And these changes impact us more than just those who are working with like the technology industry. So as a consumer and just people in life, we're now connected through technology in so much. And the important thing, if we're going to relate this to our money, is to understand how the development and the deployment of new technology kind of takes place. So there's, there's a cycle that happens. And every single time we've seen a new technology or a new thing introduced into the world, it follows the exact same cycle. It's called the hype cycle. Okay, so let me let me walk you through this for just a moment and and track with me and ask questions if you got them. So the hype cycle begins with some sort of technology trigger, right? This is the thing which is initiating enthusiasm, everyone's getting excited about it, and this just grows and builds as kind of like a, a snowball heading downhill until it peaks with inflated expectations, right? So this technology trigger now is, this is the thing that's going to revolutionize, right? All of a sudden, we're going to be like George Jetson, right? All flying around in our, our space cards. Flying so cars, very, motorized surfboards. Yeah, the yeah. whole thing. I, I've, I've seen we're both gonna, of those hype cycles. We no longer need to fly to New York because we can just simply teleport, right? 
Right. So this is where expectations of whatever it is are just completely malaligned with the actual underlying technology. So now during this peak, the technology is really still generally in its kind of conceptual and beginning stages. So then enthusiasm, uh, it hits its max capacity. It starts to die down a little bit. Interest wanes. And the novelty of whatever it is wears off, right? It was new. It was fresh. It was fun to post pictures and quotes about it and whatever the press releases are. But now we're, we're kind of over that. In this period is where the marketplace will decide if said technology is going to be successful or not. And that's where you start to get your innovators, your early adopters, entrepreneurs to really start to develop this for longevity, right? We'll call this on the cycle, the slope of enlightenment, right? So this is where massive changes begin to happen. So the last stage of that cycle, after you've had innovation and change and you're, you're tweaking the efficiency of this, is the plateau of productivity. So this is now when enough people have learned about the technology's success that it, it achieves mainstream adaptation. This is where now we all have computers in our home. We all have smartphones in our pocket. These are a couple of examples, right? So it's, it's peaked past those early adopters and it's hit every single door in America, and oftentimes all over the world. So when you look at these different types of, of cycles, it can actually help us as investors to make better predictions about things that are coming. So I thought what we do today is look back on some of the most famous hype cycles that have ever existed. So let me, let me quickly, Andrew, oversimplify the, the hype cycle process and see if you think this makes sense or, or if it's practically applicable. What we have is optimism first without fundamentals, right? Then we have what you would call the, the trough of disillusionment. And that is where the market figures out, is this headline story, is this news, is this solar-powered uh, surfboard really going to be something that people buy, need? Is this a product or service that's going to win, right? Right. Is this an asset class that's going to win, right? So we're right. going to touch on some of those things later. But then the market decides, and then you're left with either an innovation that continues to rise in popularity and profitability or something that dies out and we laugh about it 20 years later. That's right. And I don't think it's as, as, it's as black and white as it dies or it succeeds because I think that there are variations that can happen where this technology can, can fork and it can become something new that when it started in that, that early optimistic stage, all that early enthusiasm, it didn't quite pan out the way it was originally thought to be, but now has forked and become something different to adapt to whatever the needs are of you and I in the market and everybody else. Yeah. And I think it lends itself to the old horse racing analogy too. But in this case, you know, we often see that there's a hundred horses on only 10 of them actually make it to the race and one's going to win it. Right. But uh, at the early stages, which we'll 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 get into now. Uh, Go ahead, start with the start with the first one. Well, it, I mean, it's the most famous one, right? So the, yeah. the most famous hype cycle, at least in current time, is the dot coms, 
And the emergence of the internet in the 90s was revolutionary. And still to this day, we can point to has completely changed the world. Now, we have the benefit 20 years later of hindsight. But go back to the time period between the mid-90s and the early 2000s. So the dot-com boom began with really the, the digital divide right? So you're seeing advancements in computers. By the way, computers weren't invented in the 90s, right? The internet wasn't created in the 90s. This actually happened 40, 50 years earlier. The 90s is when this now became accessible to homes, individuals, families, and things of that nature. The entry level, the price point to get in was very, very high. So the barriers to entry were only for a select few, but this now began this internet revolution. Right. And do you call, first question, Andrew, do you call it the tech boom or the tech bubble when you're referring to it? Well, those are two different things. Referring to the same time period. Well, the, the, not really. So the, the tech 95 to 99 was the tech boom, right? But it was also pessimistically, I think you see it and you, and if you're referring to it in the past, you go, that was a bubble, right? It was a bubble that was growing, which was the synonymous with the boom. But yeah, in terms of the hype cycle, I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this to, you know, again, kind of a rhetorical question because in addressing the hype cycle, we have to address how we're viewing it in hindsight and how we're viewing it when we're in the middle of it to actually recognize that that's what's going on. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, th- I think I've probably referred to it as both because it was a technology boom, right? It did completely change and revolutionize how everything is done for us personally, right? How our families are run, how our households are run, how businesses are run. But again, it, it was an obvious bubble, not in the moment, but today, 20 years later, it was an obvious bubble. So when you look at that, you had companies, right? And you started your career in this time. You had companies that were going public literally daily that had very little little research done on them, that had very little fundamental basis to their actual business model, meaning how do you generate revenue? What are you selling? Is it a product or a service? They literally just had a dot-com after a name And that was the premise for, hey, let's call up the NASDAQ and bring this stock public. Yeah. And as a stockbroker at the time, like you said, I started actually on the biggest point swing day in the Dallas history up until that point. But the, um, and and I started and a 20% a day return Mm -hmm. was the expectation. Right. uh, Which, you know, is beyond me at this point. But uh, that was, that was, we're in the middle of the hype. So classic examples, right? Netscape, GeoCities. I know you've referenced this one on the podcast before, pets.com, right? Yeah. These, these companies raised enormous amounts of capital, right? From investors. This was also the time where individual investors had greater access to the capital markets because of technology and the internet. And what happened was they could not take all of this money raised in the stock market, the companies I'm referring to, and then convert that to a business model that could be sustainable and successful. So, right. And where were they getting the money? Right. So in the hype cycle, in the middle of it, the cycle can take 
days, months, or years. And in this case, years, right? So we saw in 1995, some brave souls get in there. 96, 97, you start hearing about the guy next door making money and becoming a millionaire and moving to a better neighborhood. By 1999, everybody was all in. If you right. didn't have an E-Trade account and you weren't buying something with a dot-com on the end of it, you really felt like you were missing out. Right. So 99 from an emotion, even though that wasn't the the peak of the market, that was probably the emotional peak enthusiasm, right? Everybody's right. getting involved. Now, here's the thing. We named a couple of stocks that are no longer, the companies are defunct, they're, they're very poor businesses in and of themselves. But that wasn't the case with everybody, right? There were many people who did manage to invest in the, the dot-com bubble and made tremendous amount of money, right? Sure. There was companies like Amazon. It was priced at less than $100 a share in 1999. You know, companies I, I, like- I was watching uh, Yahoo went public yeah. while I was there. Um, while I was doing the doing the trading. Uh, Yahoo, AOL, uh, Starbucks, which wasn't a technology company, but, you know, Starbucks went public at that time. And and there's a contagion effect as well, right? So if you're in a hype cycle and it's a tech hype cycle and you're at that kind of final point where everybody and their brother is now in, it's not that they're watching it to see if it's going to burst. They're all finally fear of missing out has, has hit them and they're in. The contagion effect is, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy some GE stock as well and some Starbucks because, well, you know, I've got... 90% of my retirement savings in uh, stamps.com. So, you know, I might as well hedge that with a little bit of a, uh, you know, true blue stocks. Right. So, so, and then separate to investors from the actual use of technology. So at this time, right in the late nineties, you had lots of people trying to participate in the gains in the market, but you didn't have a lot of people using the technology, right? They're, like Amazon user base in 1999 was nothing what it is today. So when you go back to those, those hype cycles and you think about, okay, now after that, that initial peak enthusiasm wanes and you see this big drop, that would be the bubble bursting in 2001, 2002. You're going to lack any sort of support for real marketing growth to move forward, but solid technology, right? We know that, that businesses were being built on fundamentally good technology. The internet is good technology. So then as, as expectations begin to adjust, the innovators come in. Right. This is where the Jeff Bezos, this is where the titans of industry are beginning to shift and say, hey, how will consumers go from just loving this as an idea to being able to practically use this each and every day until, you know, now in 2004, five and six, now you're getting Main Street adaptation. Right. And these companies are now becoming wildly, wildly successful. And fast forward to today. We cannot imagine the world without the internet. We cannot imagine the world without a dot-com. And if you're a business, it's like an unspoken rule that you have to have a website, right? We launched right. Our, our business. Well, who's the first thing we, we did? Hey, let's get a website. <laughs> That's, right. It's an unspoken yeah. rule. You know, it, it's all very similar to the automotive industry, I find, right? Because you've got the idea first, right? Let's take the horses off this cart and put an engine on there, Right. And then there's a hundred companies that are going, yeah, let's see if we can do that. Next thing you know, 20 years, 30 years later, you've got five that are actually doing it and doing it right and doing it well and making a profit at it. 
Right. So let's keep it in this century for today's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the next one I'll, I want to talk about, I think, is just as relevant, though maybe not the first one that comes to mind, renewable energy. Right. So renewable energy is not a brand new technology. Wind turbines, right, using water or other th- things alternative to fossil fuels have existed for a hundred years. But you didn't really start to see mass commercialization of renewable energies until the mid 2000s. So this is when you saw government policy, right? So energy policies released by world leaders, the UN, the US, to help bridge the gap between a technology that hadn't reached mass popularization yet, but the theory was, hey, this could be really good for just the world and the environment in large. So so you start to see this as kind of like the beginning stages of, hey, let's figure out what's going to work. What's interesting about renewable energy is that it's not just one thing. In 2003, 2004, there was like this wide open plains. You had solar, wind, uh, water. You had all this different type of smart technology, smart grid technology in how to make energy consumption and energy distribution more efficient. And at that time, you know, I remember 2005, 2006, like major news uh, networks like NBC, the Peacock was all green because it was like in vogue to be energy efficient, right? Everybody wanted to support the cause, even though there wasn't a lot of clarity on what worked. Was it actually cheaper? Was it actually better for the environment? The science wasn't developed enough. They're still doing research on that. But there was a tremendous, there was a technology trigger that created an, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm behind that. I, I would agree that the enthusiasm existed and continues to exist, but I would disagree that in the hype cycle, it, it has reached any kind of uh, secondary point. And, and what I mean by that is it's a social issue where the rubber meets the road. The social issue has not become or has not given us any kind of clarity as to how it can be financially profitable as an investment, right? So I've had since since 1998, when Calvert had their social awareness fund, I've had many clients ask me, you know, how, hey, Bill, how do I get involved with renewable energy? How can, how can I do things that are, you know, socially conscious or, or get away from fossil fuels, well, right? Let me, let me hit pause just to maybe correct some of the numbers because I think that's, that's inaccurate, right? So in, in 2000, the renewable energy space was a $7 billion industry. By 2007, it was a $77 billion industry, right? So it increased tenfold. And not only did you see a lot of just talk and chatter and excitement about it, you saw a tremendous amount of dollars and investments being put into that space as well. There was a tremendous amount of growth. And probably the most popular story was first solar, right? So this was, they got the badge of approval from, I think it was the Obama administration. And you saw in that time period, just prior to the the housing and credit crisis, a lot of renewable energy companies coming to market, IPOing, right? And again, similar to the dot-com boom, 
You had some that were, were built with strong business models on good technology, and you had others that were just there for the party, trying to raise capital in an IPO, didn't really have a, a business plan, an operations plan. How are you going to convert product or service to actual dollars on the, the balance sheet? but on the premise of this good technology. So I think the idea is, hey, renewable energy is a great technology. Great technology exists. How do you now commercialize this and make it profitable? Well, that you need to get over that that hump of enthusiasm. We saw that completely dissipate in 2008, 2009, simply because the world was paying attention to other things like, do I have a job? Let's get unemployment down. And we have we had energy sources that were reliable and that worked, right? Traditional fossil fuels. So while we're scrambling to get the world back in order, we're going to put renewable energies on the on the back burner here for a moment. Focus resources on things like stabilizing the economy, and then after that is when you saw this resurgence in development technology, which would have been that part of the curve, that part of the cycle where innovators, technology leaders are coming in to develop better technologies. And today you see tremendous, you know, tremendously successful, you know, renewable energy or smart energy type of, of companies. I would argue that Tesla is probably the perfect example. I'll, I'll argue to the mat that Tesla's in the car company. They're an energy company. And what they have done so well is they manage energy. Their most valuable asset is not their, their car design, which by the way, when they started to design cars, they made as an open format, they allowed every single car company to see uh, on an open source platform how they do it, what their technology was, because they didn't care if anybody copied their design. What they have are power stations, the charging stations, the ability to uh, harness and store and then distribute energy that's where the real value is in, in Tesla and why it's far and above done 10 times better than any other car company in the marketplace today. Right. And, and I, would, I would agree, but I, I, would, I would further say that Tesla is a technology company, right? And for what we're talking about today, that's an anomaly uh, when we talk about renewable energy and, and the hype cycle that is renewable energy. Tesla is in a league of its own when it comes to a hype cycle. And we could talk about that company specifically on a, fill an entire podcast episode of, of what is the hype surrounding Tesla and is it worth it with the market capitalization. But uh, the renewable energy hype cycle, we're, we're still in that phase where nobody knows what companies to pick. Yes, there's a few that that we we've heard of. We've seen some successful IPOs, but I I still don't think for the long term prospects that we really know what companies, if any, are going to replace fossil fuels. And we won't know until uh, until what? we until well, we get, until it gets sifted through. Which could yeah, be, I, I you know, disagree with, with, again because it's it's not a black and white. It's not a, a them or, or us, right? So you, you now. I think the greatest example of the success of renewable energy, and there are countless successful renewable energy companies, I mean, dozens and dozens that have done unbelievable in terms of just its, its performance over the last decade. But now you see companies like ExxonMobil making multi-billion dollar investments into renewable energy because they understand as an energy player, 
they are no longer able to simply rely on just traditional oils, fossil fuels, natural gases, but they have to adapt to incorporate new technology that, again, is proven to be successful. And there is now mainstream adaptation. Los right. Angeles but is a great there's example also, of this. You, you there's also down- a lot of legislation right now. And that's what the reason these, these non-renewable energy companies, for lack of a better term, are reacting out of being forced to. Right. But, you know, not to get off topic, you know, we're focusing on the hype cycle of it, whether these traditional fossil fuel companies can participate and pivot is another question. Or does the new guy come in that's got 100 percent solar panels and every car by 2035 is going to be solar powered? Right. That's 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 exactly the point. Right. So the point is that throughout these these cycles, as you're identifying technology, the 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 fundamental analysis of what a particular company can do and what its future prospects are, are very, very difficult. There, there will be some winners. There will be losers. There already have been winners. There already have been losers. So as you're an investor making predictions about the future, which is what you're doing when you're investing, you have to understand not only how these cycles happen, but how they mature, right? So that same argument you made, you could made you could make about dot coms and technology. You can make about a number of different things, especially the next thing we're going to talk about, which is probably my favorite uh, hype cycle because we're we're currently right in the middle of it. It's cryptocurrency, right? So cryptocurrency, I get more questions in the last five years about cryptocurrency than any other topic. Absolutely, and so. First, what what is a a cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is a digital asset that is built on something called blockchain technology. So very simply, and I'll try to use as little financial jargon as possible, blockchain technology is a decentralized ledger of accounting. Okay, It allows transactions to occur between me and another person or what we call peer-to-peer right, without having to use an intermediary. So Bill, right now, if you wanted to transfer me money, you would have to do it through a bank. You would have to do it through Venmo or Cash App or th- through some sort of service or, or intermediary, right? which we are essentially, we don't ever think about this, but if you take the moment to think about it, we are trusting that institution to handle that transfer efficiently and seamlessly, that the the money actually makes it from my account to your account or vice versa. What blockchain technology does is it eliminates the intermediary, right? There is no more intermediary. Everything happens directly peer-to-peer, right? On what's called private tokens or private wallets. And the validation of that transfer now occurs not by a bank or some sort of financial intermediary telling us that it's correct, but it happens between tons and tons of different people who are involved in the blockchain, right? Known as miners. So people who are mining for these these coins are the ones who validate all the transactions that occur. And what happens is it happens almost instantly and it happens at practically no cost. So, and and without regulation. And I think that was one of the reasons for its initial popularity. But to say it simply, it's a spreadsheet that we can share in the Ethernet, right? 
everybody can get on this spreadsheet and you can you can share from from peer to peer but the 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 hype though right the hype of cryptocurrency has seen quite a few peaks and troughs right so uh let's say 2008 it was uh, around when bitcoin was established we saw a big peak in 2018 so like like many when did things, you first hear about bitcoin or cryptocurrency I want to say I want to say about 2016, and you know, like like most things uh, of in the hype cycle, yeah, ah, that's not nothing's going to happen there, right? We're gonna I'll brush it off, and then 2018 certainly it was unavoidable, right? So every I would say 90 percent of my clients were asking about that as thinking it was a financial instrument that I was going to put in their portfolio, that it was something valid, but you know, jury's still out on that. Right. So it, it's, it hasn't been regulated to the point where we can consider it a, um, a financial instrument, right. It's still to me personally and professionally, it's still, it's just legalized gambling at this point. So. Well, I, you know, I disagree. So it is, it is a financial instrument. It's a financial asset. That's that's undeniable. Whether it is going to be proven to have mass adaptation, or I think better yet, at, at this point, the way I view cryptocurrency is we don't know which coins will be the ones that make it through the cycle, right? So go right, back to, say, to wait, the dot-coms. You had the Amazon and you had the pets.com. Right now, there are, back, there are 4,000 different cryptocurrencies in the market and it grows every single day. Right, but take a step back though in the explanation of this. Tomorrow, if you open your Coinbase account and you saw that Bitcoin was worth $0, there's no explanation there. Right. Fundamentally, why I don't consider it a financial instrument at this point is because there's no fundamental value other than like gold 2000 years ago. We agreed that, hey, a Bitcoin's worth $35,000 today. A group of people have agreed that, right? It's not like Coca Cola stock where people have agreed, hey, Coca Cola has X amount in sales, their earnings per share are this amount. And based on the efficient market hypothesis, Coca Cola is worth X dollars per share. It doesn't exist yet. We'll do another episode on what cryptocurrency and how blockchain technology works. As it relates to, to the hype cycle, as you alluded, this was introduced in, in 2008, 2009. Right, that anonymous paper by Satoshi Nakamoto came out and said, "Hey, here's this new technology that we've created, or I've created, or whoever he or she may be, that allows for decentralized a decentralized ledger for peer-to-peer transactions." And Bitcoin is a coin that is meant to take place for monetary value. Other coins, things like Ethereum have completely different purposes, right? So they're not in competition with each other. They actually work in conjunction with each other. Right. So let's, let's, let's do that on the crypto episode. What's so the I'm hype getting, I'm getting to the hype, hype cycle. So what, what happens now is 2017, the week of Thanksgiving, you had hundreds of thousands. It was the single most amount of accounts opened on Coinbase, right? Because the prices were so soaring. This is the first time it went to 20,000 and everybody just wanted to get involved without even knowing what it was. Right. And then it came back down to, to earth a little bit, right? And people either stayed in or they didn't or whatever happened. Now you're starting to get 
more understanding of what cryptocurrency actually is and those practical applications, not just in financial markets, right? How can we use this in healthcare? How can this be used in education? How can this be used in other areas of our lives? And what is the practical application of this technology? Now, I think for the next 10 years or five years or however long it takes, innovators and technology specialists and thought leaders are going to create those platforms, right? Banks like JP Morgan have their own coin. They're creating their own private ledgers, right? For their institutional clients. So you're starting to see this adapt, though it's it's still being thought of as some speculative asset. And there's certainly not as much excitement today as there was in those early stages when you saw the prices run up in 17 and 18. So what will right. be interesting is to see now what holds, what is the, the coins that are here to stay, and how this could potentially, how blockchain technology, the underlying technology, and what specific coins could change the future. Some people who've been in it, maybe they'll be winners, maybe they'll be losers. The, what's cool is the script hasn't been written yet. Right. And from a behavioral finance standpoint, what we're looking at is the hype cycle. And with, with blockchain, Bitcoin, where are we? We don't really know, right? We've seen a couple peaks. And the message to investors is, you could do a couple things. You can either buy everything that has a .com on it, put a thousand bucks in each and a hundred different companies and rest assured, five of them will rise to the top, right? Same with Bitcoin. You can buy a thousand different Bitcoins or a hundred different ones with a thousand bucks a piece, or you could try to cherry pick the winners to which I say diversification is key. Go with the former, not with the latter. Right. And it's the idea of you have to understand when you're making an investment, if you're investing in something new, where in this cycle are you and how much risk are you willing to take as it relates to certain investments? Some things may work out, some things may not. There was nothing wrong if you, your first investment into Amazon was in 2013. You still did great. You still made a tremendous amount of, of money. Even though it was 14 years after it initially came out, you allowed it time to mature, to develop, to have some understanding, and you still were able to be successful in that. So to bring this back to the investor listening today, it's understand where something new fits into your portfolio, all right, assess it from risk and your own ability to make that investment, right? Use small amounts of money on things that are going to inherently have more risk. Well, that's another episode of Dollars and Sensibility. The hype cycle is a fun one. We've seen a bunch. We certainly are going to see a ton more. Tune in every single Friday to learn how to be sensible with your dollars. I'm Andrew Martz. Bill McBride. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill, and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.